In the uh, early 1990s, uh, the radio host and Christian evangelist uh, Harold Camping uh, made a prediction about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would return September 6, 1994. Uh, when that time came and passed, he revised his prediction and said that, no, the Lord would return on October 2, 2005. Uh, but Harold Camping was persistent when that time came and passed. He made one more prediction that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. Uh, Harold Camping is certainly not alone uh, in making such predictions. In fact, in fact, it seems like in every generation we see and hear new predictions about the coming and the return of the Lord. Well, as we continue in 1 Thessalonians, we're into chapter 5, and Paul would have us to see that much more important than knowing when that day is, or even when that season is, is knowing who we are as the people of God, who we are as those in Christ whenever that day comes, whenever that season comes. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Paul writes this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, in some detail already, Paul has picked up uh, the theme of Christ's second coming. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 4. Paul introduced this theme and gave some detail that on the last day, as Paul said, at the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ, those in the ground will rise, receive resurrected bodies, and those on the earth at the coming of the Lord will rise too. We will together Meet the Lord in the air, Paul said. As, as Jesus is descending, we will meet him and descend with him, and he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will have this reunion and to be forever with the Lord. And what was Paul's purpose? It came in the last verse of chapter 4. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Now he moves into chapter 5, continuing on the theme of Christ's return. What is his purpose again? It's the same. We saw it in the last verse, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So there is a communal aspect that Paul is stressing in regards to the second coming. Easy to read this passage and kind of individualize it, but there's a communal thrust here that we are to build one another up, encourage one another in times of difficulty, in the face of the loss of loved ones, because the second coming drives hope into the Christian. That future day is to influence and shape us today. But there's a difference in how Paul is applying the same event, that future consummation. In chapter 4, he's wanting to encourage them in the face of the reality of death. That, that as you uh, see loved ones in the Lord pass, he said, don't grieve as those without hope. And so he encourages us by pointing us to the resurrection of the dead. That we are not to grieve in the face of death like those hopeless, like the world. But here in chapter 5, the application is a bit different. He's really encouraging the saints by assuring them of their salvation. This is a text about the assurance of the believer's life in Christ, his salvation. And we see that in a few places. One is in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, he says to the whole church, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's unique from Paul here is what he grounds that assurance in. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What ought to give me assurance of my salvation? What ought to give me confidence in standing before the Lord, either upon my death, my last breath here on earth, or at the coming, the day of the Lord and His return? What's the ground upon which I'm standing for that assurance? Uh, some of us may be familiar with the late D. James Kennedy's book, uh, Evangelism Explosion. And uh, among other things, in there are questions uh, that you might use in evangelistic efforts. And uh, one of the questions is this. Suppose that you were to die today and were to stand before Almighty God. And, and He were to say to you, What right do you have to enter into my heaven? What would you say? I think Paul's addressing a similar kind of question. Upon what foundation or grounds are we standing to be assured that at our last breath or at the last day, we will be rescued from judgment, that we will dwell with the Lord? Well, a misunderstanding of that first verse, chapter 5, verse 1, could lead one to conclude that the assurance of my salvation at that last day is, is based on knowing when the season is coming, when the day is coming. Verse 1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, Paul says, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You are fully aware in regards to this day of the Lord. What does Paul mean that they have no need to be further informed, any more informed about the day of the Lord? Did they already know? Did they already have confidence that this season would be imminent, that this day would be coming soon? Of course not. 
We remember Jesus' words in Mark 13, verse 32, where Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Certainly, if Jesus in his own human nature did not know the time in which he would return, we certainly would not. For Paul, the key in being prepared for the end is not knowing when that day or even when that season comes, but in knowing who you are in the Lord whenever that season comes, knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. So it's not knowing when, but it's being found in Him when the time comes. And the reason for that is, among other things, the nature of this day that is coming. Paul uses rich theological language, an important biblical term to describe this day. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The term, the day of the Lord, is riddled throughout the Old and New Testament. And while the words at at first glance could seem like something kind of pleasant, ah, the day of the Lord, that sounds good. The day of the Lord. It's really an earth-shattering, earth-shaking kind of day. It is a day of great dread and horror for those in darkness, and it is a day of salvation and glory for those in the light. Listen to the prophet Joel describing the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming near. It is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is a day that is so horrific, it's going to divide all of humanity between those who are in darkness and those who are in light. And there's no way of escaping this day. There's no provision that man can can create to escape the reality of this day. About three months into the uh, pandemic, I think it was around June or July of 2020, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal um, featuring what what are called survival condos. Really an amazing picture out in South Dakota among acres and acres of grasslands are about 600 underground bunkers. Uh, These are not ordinary bunkers. Uh, You can just see them pop out of the ground maybe uh, seven feet, just enough for the door for you to enter and then go down. It's a, a network of underground fully furnished condos, fully furnished living and dining rooms, fully supplied kitchens, Greenhouses producing food underneath, uh, workout facilities, swimming pools. Didn't look too bad, actually. Uh, air filtration systems. And, and they, were, they were created to, to protect one during a nuclear blast. And those who had purchased them and invested in them thought, why not put them to use uh, now? They are quite a sight to see. Some of us might be thinking that sounds pretty good, actually. It's... Uh, Yet, as impressive as they are, uh, they will provide no protection on the day of the Lord. There's nothing man can do to escape this day. And Paul gives three 
quick metaphors or pictures to illustrate the inescapability and the suddenness of this day. Picture one, the thief in the night. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is a picture of a home invader or a burglar that Paul's getting at. Picture two is a land or nation clinging to the illusion of peace and then being brutally invaded and attacked. He says, while people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. There's the picture. I'm sure many of us can remember where we were when we heard the news of the 9-11 attacks, this invasion, this, this suddenness. It pales in comparison to the day of the Lord. Picture three, a pregnant woman who feel those uh, first contractions. He says, like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. All three of these pictures are, are describing the shock and the inescapability for the godless. For the godless. And, and the reason for the horrific shock is not because they didn't know the day was coming. That as well. It's who they are. Paul describes them as those in darkness. The light has not gone off in their heart, in their life, to the reality of these things. Those who do not have the rock and refuge of the Lord. You see, the homeowner is not prepared for a burglar by knowing what day he comes, but by securing his home if and when that day does come. The nation is not prepared for an attack by knowing when an attack might occur, but by securing the nation so that if and when an attack happens, the people are protected. The woman is not prepared for labor pains by simply anticipating or knowing when the first contraction might occur, but by training and preparation so that when the contractions come, she can endure with strength. The godless are not prepared because of who they are. They are of the darkness. But then Paul makes this turn in contrast in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The same day of the Lord that brings destruction to the godless also brings glory to the saints. So it's a day of great horror, but it's also a day of tremendous light and glory. In fact, if you turn to Paul's next letter, which we will go into in a few weeks, he continues on this theme in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice what he says in chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. Speaking about God's comfort and relief, he says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. While judgment and destruction are poured out upon those who do not know God, the saints of God 
will not only be rescued from judgment, but they themselves will be glorified, resurrected and glorified, and they will see the glory of Christ and marvel at His majesty. And Paul's emphasis on this last day, it's not to distract our present earthly circumstances. It's not to to lessen life in the present and the importance of it. I think it's the opposite. It's really the opposite. Have you ever heard the saying, some people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. I don't think that's true at all. Lives that long to be with the Lord, that, that pray and contemplate the glory to come for us, that desire rescue from sin in this fallen world, to see the consummation. Those are often the people who are the most uh, of salt and light and effect for Christ's kingdom. While Paul writes to assure us of our place, our security with Christ, as he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. That word destined means purposed, set, fixed. He is made. It even gives a picture of of imprisonment, seized or captured. He has destined us for that. He's captured us for that. Yet, while he's writing to assure us, I think there's at least two dangers I would want to point out in considering the day of the Lord. Two dangers to avoid. One is the danger of having anxiety or worry over the potential nearness of that day or even the end of our lives here on earth. Anxiety or worry over the potential nearness of that day. Uh, Sometimes in society, sometimes in our own lives, it seems like the, the sky is falling. Maybe it is. But we're not to worry. Our Lord commands us, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about tomorrow. We are to find our rest and peace in Him. One of the clear messages... Uh, throughout all of Scripture, is that our present circumstances are not the window through which we are to understand ourselves or ultimate reality. They're very limited in that way. We are to know reality through the revelation of God, His special revelation, His Word to us. So the psalmist will say, We will not fear, though the earth gives way. For God is our refuge. God is our strength. And every generation seems to see wars, rumors of wars, famine throughout the world, civil strife, ruthless dictators. We can lose a lot in this world, lose a lot in life, but we're not to lose ourselves in anxiety or worry. And Paul's words reassure us and encourage us in that way. We're to be still. We're to know who God is and who we are in Him. The second danger is not worry over the potential nearness of the day of the Lord. The other danger, the second danger, is complacency in assuming that that day, whenever it is, must be a long way off. That's why, as you read the New Testament, the authors write with this sense in which the the day of the Lord is imminent, uh, creating a kind of vigilance and readiness in the Christian life. 
This is the false sense of peace and security because one thinks they have more time. I'm only 20. I'm not 20. I'll take things more serious in time to come. I'm, o- I'm only 40. I've got a career. I've got, I've got kids. They, they need focus. I'll, I'll worry and concern, concern myself with, with matters of faith later on. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come. It's not merely those who are outwardly rebellious, anti-religious, unruly, kind of outwardly defiant, who will be shocked and unprepared. It's those who are living their normal lives. They're going about their ordinary routines. They're simply not in Christ and in His light. In my own study Bible, in verse 3, there's a reference to Luke 17. We heard some of these words earlier. Jesus is describing to his disciples in Luke 17, in reference to those words in verse 3, when people are saying peace and security, falsely, kind of illusion. Here, Jesus speaks about his his kingdom, at least in its inauguration through his life, death, his resurrection, uh, perhaps the destruction of the, the temple in AD 70. But perhaps it's, it's an allusion to, to his second coming as well. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What were people doing? Jesus says, eating, drinking, marrying, buying and selling, planting and building. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And part of his point is that People are simply going about their normal activities. And then destruction comes. And amidst the reality of Christ's coming, Paul wants to establish assurance that that whether the day be near or the day be far off, that we are confident of our place in Him. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of Man, that you may know that you have eternal life. The authors of Scripture write, wanting us to be assured and confident of our place in the Lord. But what does Paul root our confidence and our assurance in? I think two things from this text. First and foundational is our identity in the Lord. Our position in the Lord. He says, But you are not in darkness, verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. That, to me, is not behavioral language. That is more positional language. Throughout the Scriptures, the, the metaphors of light or day or darkness and night, they represent salvation. Light is salvation. Darkness is lostness, spiritually. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So Paul is saying, this is who you are in Christ. You are light. We belong. More positional language. We belong to the day. And so, that identity, that belonging, precedes 
our behavior in Christ. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. There the younger son ran away, squandered all his inheritance. He lost nearly all hope and everything else. And the text says, yet while he was still a long way off, returning, perhaps his head down, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. It wasn't the son's behavior that caused the father's warm embrace, but the father's compassion for his son. And then the son says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And so the father says, bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, let us celebrate and rejoice. This son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is now found. That acceptance and that forgiveness that rejoicing and celebration, that the son's place in the family all come not because of the son's behavior, but fundamentally in spite of it, through repentance and the father's compassionate embrace. I'm often moved by those words from our hymn, how sweet and awesome is the place. Why was I made to hear your voice? And enter while there's room. When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. But Paul doesn't end with our mere position in Christ. He also emphasizes the necessity of fruit bearing as a result of our position in Christ. And that fruit bearing contributes to our assurance in the Lord. The pursuit after a holy life. So he says, you are children of light. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. He calls us to live and pursue a life of holiness. To sleep in that context here, to sleep here is to be spiritually disengaged, distracted, kind of morally unresponsive. Sometimes we need to be uh, woken up from a uh, spiritual sleep, spiritual stupor. When the things of God are not central in our lives, meditation upon His Word and seeking communion with Him in prayer and uh, seeking opportunity for fellowship with the people of God, putting sin to, to death, all of these things, they can sometimes begin to be sidelined in our lives. Have you ever been uh, driving and you're so tired, your eyes start to go down? You're starting to fall asleep. Very dangerous, isn't it? Very dangerous. It can happen spiritually. Paul's words are filled with assurance. Yes, for you are children of light. God has not destined us to obtain uh, wrath, but salvation through Christ. But that growing assurance that we have in Him also flows out of a life grounded in Him, but also producing fruit, pursuing Him, living according to the people of God that we are in Him. Well, we live in a day in which uh, many, many provisions exist uh, to help ensure one's well-being and safety, health insurance, life insurance, investments for retirement, security systems on homes and cars, 
uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. It makes sense, uh, many of them, for this brief life. But we are called to invest our lives in the only thing that ensures eternal security. And that is a life in Christ. Cultivating that life in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we continue to look to You, giving thanks for uh, calling us to Yourself from darkness into the marvelous grace and light of Jesus Christ. We thank You, O Lord, that You have defined our lives, not by our birth and our physical death, but by uh, Your grand story of redemption. That we who have been regenerated and are in Christ have life everlasting. And we pray that the day of the Lord, that final day, O Lord, would fill us with hope, that you would establish us and grow us in confidence in our own salvation. Even amidst our own weakness and sin, our own brokenness and troubles, O Lord, fill us with hope and confidence. And then we pray that you would cause us uh, to look to one another, to encourage one another, to build one, another's, one another up. Do that work, Lord, in us by your Spirit. We thank you for the work that you are doing in our midst. We pray that you would continue to uh, nourish us now, Lord, with the Lord's Supper. As we know your uh, communion and presence with us. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand.